to keep you. That's all right. You ready to go to work? Oh my God, I'm so ready to go to work. Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick Klein, this is the day. This is the day we see Joe Biden and Kamala Harris together. Uh, history made in this choice of a running mate, obviously. Uh, also, uh, as historic and uh, you know, all the superlatives you can give for this, also um, something that I think both you and I thought was going to happen for like the past three months. Not, not, not that I'm trying to say we, we nailed this, but... But we did. Yeah, yeah, we did. We did. We did. It's, I can't remember another time where the totally predictable, totally obvious, of course it was going to be choice, is also the historic choice, the, 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 the landmark choice, the first African-American or first black woman on a ticket, uh, first Asian-American woman on a ticket. Uh, and uh, obviously her background, her story is being well told out there and is, a, is, is valuable for Joe Biden. But it just made so much sense, almost too much sense from the start. And the, the Biden camp it would appear, landed exactly where it would have started. So, you know, we, uh, in, in talking about this, I, I, who do we talk to? Who, who, who could we reach out to to help us, you know, kind of shed some light into uh, to what this pick means uh, and where we go with the race? Who better, Rick? Well, who, who would be your top choice if we were to reach out to somebody right now? Well, now, if I don't say who our guest is, I'm going to look like I'm insulting her. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't want to do that. We want to do that. But, well, look, we should find someone that really knows the process, knows the system, knows the players, knows, knows what's going on behind the scenes. Well, why don't we try with Jen Psaki? Let's do it. Can we do this? <laughs> uh, former White House communications director, uh, one of the absolute first players uh, on the Obama campaign, was right there when Obama made the decision uh, to tap uh, uh, Joe Biden as his running mate. Jen Saki, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Oh, great to be here. Great to be here. And if you were going to say someone else, Rick, I wouldn't have taken it personally. <laughs> I'm pretty tough after having been in this business a while. So, I, I, you know, one thing that strikes me, Jen, about this is, uh, look, we, we, I think we thought back in March uh, after it was clear that, uh, that, that Biden was well on his way to getting the nomination, uh, that as he looks for a running mate, Kamala Harris would be at the top of the list. Um, but, you know, we, we, he went through this process. He made it clear he was going to choose a woman. Uh, he made it clear that he had uh, several women of color uh, that were on the list. And in going through this process, we learned a hell of a lot about some extremely well-qualified uh, potential running mates uh, like Val Demings, Keisha Lance Bottoms, uh, Susan Rice, somebody we had known quite well but in, in a very different context. Um, uh, you know, uh, Governor Grisham, uh, Karen Bass, all people that were public figures, to be sure, but 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 we're now seeing um, and in, in a much more, um, you know, we we got to know them much better through this process. It, it, it seemed that in addition to to choosing the the candidate who, I think a lot of us would have thought he would have ultimately have chosen. He also uh, managed to introduce the American public in, 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 in a serious way to a, a whole range of a potential you know, next generation of, of Democratic leaders. That's true. And, you know, even though all of those people weren't the choice for his running mate, as we know, we're going to see them again. 
right? It may be that they, some of the people who, that you mentioned um, will be members of a Biden cabinet if he wins. Maybe some of them, you know, Karen Bass certainly could be a, a, a high level potential to run for uh, Kamala Harris's seat. So we're going to hear these names again and again, I think. Um, and he really, whether it was purposeful or not, as you said, kind of introduced a lot of them to the American public. I mean, it's also remarkable, and you touched on this, that we're at a point where the safe choice, which I think it was the safe choice too, was a is the first African-American woman to be on a ticket, right? I mean, that's where the Democratic Party is right now, and that's probably where it's going. So a lot of those players that you named, I think, are... Um, you know, where the party's headed, frankly, more than probably a model of Joe Biden would be. And, and you know, the, the other thing about this being the historic choice, which, frankly, we, we did say and could have said about Sarah Palin being an historic choice for, for, for John McCain, un, unlike Sarah Palin, who had, who had been governor of Alaska for, you know, for, for, for you know, for, for a blink of the eye, uh, Kamala Harris, the reason why she's the safe pick in some ways is this is somebody who's won statewide uh, multiple times in the state of California. Uh, she's been a you know district attorney uh, for, what, six years in, in San Francisco, mm -hmm. attorney general for, for the state of California for, uh, for about the same length of time, uh, senator from California. I mean, this is somebody that brings a, a serious resume uh, to the job yeah. of, of, of vice president. I have no doubt that Kamala Harris can name several newspapers she reads a day, right? <laughs> right. Or digital versions yeah. of it, shall we say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think she is, she's a known entity, right? I mean, she is somebody who has been a rising star in the Democratic Party for more than a decade. Uh, she's somebody who um, has kind of been mapping her way through the system in California. And even though she wasn't a successful presidential candidate, she also kind of dropped out at a strategically wise moment, right? Because there was nobody who voted against her. She was able to align herself. You know, she dropped out in December, just to remind everyone. And, and she kind of preserved herself in that way. So she's a... Um, you know, I think she's been kind of right for this moment. As you said, we all thought it was going to be her several months ago. We went through this journey where we flirted with all sorts of different uh, possible running mates, possible options. Um, Joe Biden also has known her a long time. You know, she, her relationship with Bo Biden, his son who had passed away several, a couple of years ago, was deep and goes back. She was also a big campaigner for Obama, the Obama-Biden ticket back in the day. And he's somebody who kind of goes with his gut, right? They had lots of conversations in the past, and they probably had some good ones recently. But um, the fact that it came back full circle to her isn't a huge surprise. I don't think it should feel like a huge surprise. And Jen, they, they know each other well, as you mentioned. Uh, and yeah. we, we also remember the moment, and it's capital T, capital M, the moment yes. now at the debate, the first debate, where... Isn't it the only moment we all really remember from the debate <laughs> pretty, at this point anyway? Pretty close. But in case you forgot, we're going to play it right now because we want to we wanna, wanna ask you about it. Do you agree today? Do you agree today? that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then. No, Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I opposed. Well, I there did was not a failure of, of states to, to integrate no, public schools in America. You know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. 
and she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. Now, Jen, that was a clinic. That was a haymaker. That was a planned attack that was launched by Kamala yeah. Harris. She knew exactly what she was doing. And the clear implication at the time, and even with 14 months removed, was, you know, Joe, you're kind of old and out of touch and you don't get race in America. What do you – obviously, this is not a surprise to the Biden camp. Joe Biden remembers that better than anyone. It's come up so repeatedly. Yeah. But what do you do from a communications perspective with that moment when you had the, the, the woman who's now the running mate pointing out – a very obvious vulnerability of the man at the top of the ticket. Well, one, uh, I think she needs a better answer than the one that she gave. I think she was during an interview with Stephen Colbert, where she sort of fumbled through it and she'll have that opportunity clearly. Um, but I think it needs to be, she needs to be a validator for Joe Biden now, right? Has Joe Biden always historically had um, the best, most progressive record on race issues? No, he hasn't. Has he, does she feel confident that he has, um, grown and he has uh, is somebody who is listening and wants to do the right thing. If she, I hope she feels that way, otherwise she shouldn't have accepted the the role. But that's how I think she can address it moving forward. There's no question at the time, and I remember this well. I mean, it was like a gobsmack for um, Joe Biden and the people around him because it felt harsh, right, to them. Now. If you separate yourself from the personal side of that, it also shows that she's a very effective attack dog. Because not only did she attack him, she did it in a way where she weaved her bio in. And if you're in the fight of your life, the race of your life, you're trying to you know, win the presidency, you want the people who are effective at that, who can do that to Donald Trump. And I think they've kind of separated um, the wise people there, including Joe Biden, themselves from the personal feeling at the moment and recognize how effective she is at that. At the same time, she has to have a better answer for why she feels comfortable being the running mate with someone who she said that about a year ago. Jen, I want to ask you about what we can learn about the Biden team from this process. Yeah. Uh, I, lo I love Veep Steaks, and, and uh, uh, I remember where I was. Who doesn't? We all love it. <laughs> I remember exactly where I was for just about every vice presidential pick going back, you know, 25 years now. Like, like, yeah. like, where, like, 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 a, like where I was, like I remember where I was on 9-11, right? Yeah. It's that kind of clarity. And I remember in 2008, the way that I found out that Joe Biden was picked by Barack Obama is my cell phone went off at like three yeah. in the morning. And, you know, your your team with this is obviously a technologically a much different era, but your, your team sent out the word and, and a lot of America woke up in the middle of the night to it. And it was after hours of leaks and scrambles and, you know, is who's in, who's out, all, all sorts of things. Pre-Twitter. This was pre-Twitter. Exactly. This was the cleanest rollout of the modern era, in my mind, uh, in terms of the Biden team holding on to this, um, and again, even you know, keeping an element of surprise, even if it was the totally predictable choice. Right. What does that tell you? What does that tell you about what a Biden White House would look like? You know, they have been knocked around a lot um, for whether they have a good operation, whether they're good at communications, whether they're good at you know aligning with groups. But this should give people uh, some confidence because as you've kind of highlighted here, it is really hard to keep this a secret and to do an effective rollout while it's a secret of kind of the biggest news that any presidential candidate has. And they did that well and did it in a way where, as you said, it was a surprise, but you know, people felt excited about it. There were stories that followed, statements that followed. They have an event today, so they'll get two days of coverage. It's really hard to break through the Trump show. I don't have to tell you guys, you live it every day. Um, 
and they're going to effectively do that. So people should feel pretty good about that. They've also done something smart. I mean, what people, you know, what, from having lived it a few times, when you're going through the transition of bringing a vice presidential running mate along, it is like, a, you know, two divorced people marrying each other who have kids and you have to merge the families, you know? I mean, it is hard. And you have to kind of quickly get the vice presidential candidate and their team up to speed and make sure you feel that trust and alignment um, is like in place quickly. They have put a number of people on her team. I mean, we didn't know it was her before they announced this, who are very close to Biden. Um, Sheila Nix, who is his former, uh, Jill Biden's former chief of staff, Liz Allen, who's going to be the communications director. That means there's going to be alignment. She'll bring in her own people, but that felt like a good sign um, from watching kind of their their chain of announcements yesterday too. Next week is going to be a big test because it's kind of her, it's the convention. She'll have a primetime speech. It will be her opportunity to introduce herself to the public, reintroduce herself to the public, and hopefully address in her words some of these concerns about her law enforcement, her background as a prosecutor that some people in the party um, are, you know, going to keep poking into. It, it is always interesting in the, in the Veep stakes when the, when, the, when the running mate is chosen, there is that landing team already put in place. You, you already know yeah. who the press secretary yeah. is going to be. You already know who's going to be, you know, the, the, the top staffers uh, for, for the VP. And those are chosen not by the running mate, but Sometimes chosen awkward. Uh, by yeah. the candidate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Jim, one, one of the things that we were talking about shortly after this uh, pick was announced is uh, the, the issue of Donald Trump's donations. Donald Trump donated a total of $6,000 to Kamala Harris's campaigns for attorney general in California. Awkward. And, yes. <laughs> and, 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 by, you know, and by the way, we know Trump's given a lot of money to sure. Democrats over the years. Sure. But, but, but what was especially awkward about this was the timing uh, the donations were in 2011 and 2013. After 2010, Donald Trump had basically stopped giving money to Democrats. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, a few exceptions here and there. But but all of those big donations to Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi, and Trump, those are all before this. By 2011, I think you may remember, he was running around the country trying to tell people that Barack Obama isn't a citizen of the right. United States. Right, right. I mean, he was in the middle of the birtherism stuff. Yeah. He was a radioactive to Democrats, and he was fully in uh, with the far right of the Republicans at this point. So, I don't know. It's uh, it's 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 a strange one to me. Um, you know, first of all, it's awkward for Trump to explain why he, if Harris is so extreme, why he was uh, supporting her campaign. But, I mean. It's also a little awkward. Why would she accept this money? Now, she, she, it should be said she did return it, but returned it not until 2015 when Trump was running for president. So, I mean, and after she had won re-election. So, so she didn't return this money in real time, didn't return it until years later. What, what, what do you make of all that? You know, it's a good question. I'm sure she'll be asked about it. Um, my suspicion, not to take the blame off of her personally, but sometimes stuff like that is decided at a staff level, as you know. And they may not have made all of the connections that should have been made. I'm sure we'll learn more about that because that's a good question to ask. But, um, but you know, I, I don't know. It seems unlikely they were going through with her personally all of the donations and asking her whether she should return them. But I guess we'll learn more. I mean, I think it is a reflection of the fact that it's hard for Trump and others. We saw this from the RNC yesterday to figure out how exactly to go after her. Right. I mean. They 
on one hand are she was she's the most liberal member of the of the Democratic Party. On the other hand, she's she's upsetting liberals. You kind of can't be both. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see, too, if they get their act together and determining what their line of attack is or how much they care about it. All right. Well, Jen Psaki, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. Sure. We always enjoy talking to you. Rick, we've got to take a quick break. We will be back with part two of Powerhouse Politics. And welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Yvette Simpson, Chief Executive of Democracy for America and, of course, an ABC News contributor. So, Yvette, tell me, what do you make of the pick? You know, I have so many emotions right now. It has been quite a whirlwind uh, the last 24 hours or so. So, you know, I represent a progressive organization, so... Kamala Harris would not have been our first or second choice, at least when it comes to progressive policy. Um, that would have been probably Elizabeth Warren, Stacey Abrams, and even maybe a Karen Bass would have been a progressive choice. But as you know, progressives are rooted in re representative democracy. We're excited about the historic nature of the pick. We think she makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so super excited, particularly as an African-American woman, who leads a progressive organization that's committed to racial justice and having her be the pick. And we think we can work with her. I mean, she was a DFA endorsed uh, candidate in a run for uh, Senate. And so we have some history with her. We've worked with her before. And so uh, excited. We're excited that the pick is behind us and we're ready to get to work. So I I explain, g g give in short the, what, what the progressive, uh, concerns have been about about Harris. I mean, obviously, she was uh, district attorney in San Francisco, attorney general. Mm -hmm. uh, so she's a prosecutor. She spent more yeah. than a decade as a prosecutor in California. What 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 have been? Why would she not have been the first, second, or maybe even the third choice uh, in the primary? So there's a couple things. I mean, one, you know, certainly her criminal justice past is a challenge and criminal justice reform is a major platform for progressives, especially when you think about the amount of attention we're paying to that right now with George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor's murder, and the list goes on um, and what's happening in our country right now. Um, she was considered a progressive pr prosecutor for her time, um, but not based on today's standards. There were some concerns about um, issues around her prosecuting of marijuana um, um, uh, offenses back uh, when she was certainly a DA uh, and as an AG, uh, concerns about some things that she had said on the campaign trail when she was running about being tough on crime, about, you know, criminalizing um, nonviolent offenders that a lot of folks are really concerned about. Um, so the list goes on with that. I think today what she's been able to do, and I talked a little bit about this on several occasions, is kind of thread the needle here to say I wasn't as progressive back then, but by you know standards back then I was pretty progressive. You know she's known for some pretty progressive um, uh, kind of reformer things that she did back then. But today, look at me now, and she's been I think among the most outspoken. Uh, particularly in the last few months around George Floyd and certainly Breonna Taylor. And I think what she can and will say is that I'm in the best position to talk about how policing needs to be reformed because I've been there before. And maybe I didn't feel as empowered or as knowledgeable about how to do that then, but I know how to do that now. And I can, I can tell you uh, that criminal justice reform um, advocates, progressives are going to be calling on her uh, to do that when she's vice president. The second thing is health care. 
she was an original supporter of Medicare for All, um, you know, that Bernie Sanders put forward. And then when she got on the campaign trail to run for president, she backtracked. And there were concerns about her being responsive to, um, you know, uh, p- uh, private interests, particularly insurance companies and others that might have been appealing to her um, to change her mind. And so there was a real concern about her shift on that. So those are the two policy issues that I think progressives are most concerned about with her. If I think, thinking about the criminal justice stuff, I was struck. Mm-hmm. I, one of the, one of the crystal crystallized memories of the campaign to me was when um, our our friend and colleague uh, Lindsey Davis asked specifically why uh, at one of the debates why when she was in a position of power she wasn't able to do more, and I didn't. She didn't have a great answer at the time. But when you had the power, why didn't you try to affect change then? There have been, um, there have been, I'm glad you asked me this question, and there have been many distortions of my record. Let me be very clear. Uh, I made a decision to become a prosecutor for two reasons. One, I have always wanted to protect people and keep them safe. And second, I was born knowing about how this criminal justice system in America has worked in a way that has been informed by racial bias. I'm interested in your take on is it okay for her to say, you know, look, I've I've found religion on this, or I've evolved on this as the party has evolved? How, how much do you, does your organization, do your members feel like, no, you have to hold someone to account for what they actually did in office, not what they're saying when they're trying to get into another office? I think I think there's grace there, and we always try to give folks grace to to grow. I think here's the thing: I wish she had just right at the beginning of the campaign just handled it then, right? Here's what my history was. Here is why I was in the position I have to do it this way. Here's what we know now about the ability to really reform policing. Back then, the way that we know criminal justice reformers, they didn't really exist. If you were in the position of prosecutor, you weren't even empowered to take on the police union, to make real changes at that time. And so I give, I personally give her a little bit of grace as a lawyer myself, not a prosecutor, to understand how challenging it was could have been for her. And also there's that juxtaposition. She had said on many occasions, she got into um, the prosecutor's office because she wanted to change the system from the inside. Anybody who's ever tried to change a system from the inside knows how hard that is. She was also responsible for California at a time where gang violence was a big deal. She was probably, and this is where I give her grace, she was probably torn between, I've got to find justice for people who have been hurt, harmed um, by the system, but also find grace for the black and brown people who are subject to um, the inequity of the system. And that might have been a tough thing for her to do while in the role at the time that she was serving in that role when there wasn't a huge, you know, we know what we know, you know, we know a lot more about what the system can do and should not be doing and the ways it impacts people. Um, now and the ways that people in a prosecutor role now, you think about the Wesley Bells, you think about Kim Fox, you think about um, Larry Krasner, you think about Rachel Rollins, folks who have been able to go into the system and really shift it from the inside. That didn't exist in that form back when she was in that role. So that would be the way that I think she could start to have that conversation with progressives and say, now I'm in a position to really change the system. I know it uh, and I want to be able to change it. Let's look at the top of the ticket for a moment, because if Kamala Harris wasn't your second or third choice for 
for VP. I think it's fair to say Joe Biden wasn't your 10th, 11th, or 12th choice for president. Pretty safe uh, and, to say. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, he's he, talking about criminal justice issues. He's, he, was the, he was the author of the 1994 crime Mando, bill. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and, and he, he's, never, he's never come close to Medicare for all as, as, a, as a policy position. Right. Uh, how, how much, what's the signal that you get out of this pick of Kamala Harris when he, not only does he not embrace the progressive positions of 2020, um, not of not of 1994, of 2020's progressive positions. He's not going there. To not choose a running mate who 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 embodies those those positions either. Is there a special burden on him? And what does he still have to prove? You know, I think a couple of things. One, progressives are like really comfortable in the position of like advocating and pushing from the outside because we understand that progressive change doesn't come easy. You know, there you know the establishment exists for a reason. They are the establishment, you know, and, you know, in, a, in an election like this one, the real challenge is we've got to take Trump out. And as much as progressives want all the things that we desire and need the things we desire in the middle of a pandemic, we need health care. We need reform you know, on income inequality right now. We need fair wages. All these things that we fight for um, are really, really heightened during the pandemic. But we also understand that we've got to beat Trump. And when the voters chose Joe Biden overwhelmingly, we had an expectation that he would not choose a progressive, right? Because he, he's, you know, we're talking about in being in a position of fear. He's really worried about going too far because of what Trump might do. He's worried about upsetting certain people within the party. So I think there was an expectation that he probably wouldn't choose someone super progressive. And even if he did, how much would they clash and would that person really be able to get through, right? Like picking Elizabeth Warren, if Elizabeth Warren was his choice, how much are, is she really going to be able to pull him to get things done? Or is she going to be running up against a brick wall? I think the thing with Kamala is that Kamala is known to us. We do know her um, and she is considered and has been considered a progressive in the past, despite the things that we've talked about. There's also this expectation that she really is going to listen, that she she may be able to buck the system a bit. Like if she gets her arms around something and really wants to do it, she may actually go out and do that and even be able to bring Joe along. The challenge with Joe Biden is he's not been as receptive to messages from the outside. He's really kind of been, been you know, challenged in hearing about the, the, you know, his previous history. You might remember even in the debate when Kamala Harris talked to him about his, you know, segregationist, coddling and and all the issues around uh, busing, he didn't really hear that. We believe that Kamala Harris would be more likely to be responsive to the progressive viewpoint and may be willing to push or pull him along. Uh, And that is the, the expectation and the hope. But yeah, I think with certainly progressives were concerned with Joe Biden and then the Kamala Harris position meant, oh, no, he's not ready to go there 100%. He's really not truly unifying us in a way of being open to pushing forward progressive agenda in this next four years. So, so finally, one, one last question on the big picture of the race. I mean, right now, it looks very good for Democrats. It looks pretty grim uh, on the Trump side in terms of the national polls, in, t- in terms of the polls in, I, I believe, every single swing state right now. Uh, 538 put out their, um, they, they're starting their election forecast. Uh, and had a 70, 71% chance of a Biden win, 29% chance of a Trump win. Uh, and our, our uh, Frank Luntz, who occasionally joins us on this podcast, pointed out that is almost exactly where 538 
had the Hillary Clinton Donald Trump uh, nice. race on election day. <laughs> that was right. like the going into going right. into the voting. So <laughs> that was exactly where I was going. <laughs> so so what, what I'm what I'm wondering is um, as you as you look at the race, <clears throat> how confident are you uh, that that Biden Harris will will beat uh, uh, Trump Pence? And what do you think is the risk? How would they blow it? How would they blow um, this? Thing? I think the first thing is relying too much on polls. So I always say when you're inside 100 days, it's not about polling, it's about planning, right? What are you building? What we know is that this year is unique because Democrats won't be able to engage the way we traditionally do, door to door, out at events, in person. That's kind of our jam. Progressives in particular, grassroots organizing, getting boots on the ground. We can't do it that way. We know that we're going to come up against significant voter suppression in key states, right, many of which are run by Republican Secretary of States. We know we're going to run up against a lot of lawsuits from the Republican Party about the validity of ballots. We know that we're not in an ideal situation to allow people to be able to vote. We have some of these states where very few people have voted by mail before. And so even just the lift on voter education about how to complete these ballots, different standards in each state about how you get a ballot and how you return and track a ballot, if you can even track a ballot. And so these numbers four years ago weren't good enough. I'm really, really worried about what these numbers mean with all of that in mind. And so what I don't want Democrats or Joe Biden or Kamala Harris to do is to get complacent. We do not have this thing in the bag. You guys know I'm from Ohio. Um, Clinton was winning in Ohio by nine points two weeks out from the election and lost Ohio by eight points, 17 point swing. And that was not in the midst of COVID. That was not in the midst of voter suppression the way we're seeing it now. We haven't talked about foreign interference. Um, and it certainly was not in the midst of, you know, the challenges we're going to have with a different way of people voting in a pandemic. And so I just want to remind folks that polling is good. Polls don't vote. They, they don't always pan out. And we've got a lot to contend with. So let's get to the work of actually planning, doing the work, getting voters excited. I will say since the announcement yesterday, I have seen a lot more excitement than I've ever seen. And so I'm seeing black women who I believe are the black are the backbone of the Democratic Party, you know, natural mobilizers, natural holders of community. They bring a lot of voters with them getting excited. And if we can engage them and others um, to really get people out to vote and do this work we've got to do, I think we've got a shot. All right. Well, 89 days by my count uh, to go until oh Election Day. Uh, Yvette Simpson, thank you for joining us on Powerhouse Politics. For Rick Klein and our entire Powerhouse Politics team, thank you for listening. We will be back next week, if not sooner. Thanks for listening.